Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, Managing Partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Our next guest really needs no introduction. She's well-known throughout the driverless vehicle community and a leading innovator in public transportation in the United States. We're here with Karina Ricks. She's the director of the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure for the city of Pittsburgh. Previously, Karina served as the associate director for the District of Columbia Department of Transportation. She has a master's in city and regional planning from Cornell, and along the way, she found time to become a Fulbright scholar. Karina, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. We are thrilled to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Ken. Karina, I want to talk to you a little bit about your life as a Peace Corps volunteer because I really think it speaks to who you are as a public servant. You went to uh, Tonga in 1993, and for our listeners who don't know exactly where Tonga is, um, it's a chain of 170 islands in the South Pacific. And you went there, and you were an advisor on environment and microenterprise. Um, certainly not hot topics then, but really hot topics now. And I'm wondering, what did you think when you heard, congratulations, you're going to Tonga, Karina? Well, the first thing, uh, as I'm sure many of the listeners probably think, is where is Tonga? This is not a well-known country. Um, it has about 100,000 residents on the, the islands themselves, um, but it has a number of expats that are all around the globe many, many in California and elsewhere, uh, Salt Lake City, elsewhere in the United States and across the world. But right, Tonga was not exactly uh, first on the list of places that I wanted to go, let alone even knew about going, but really was a, was a tremendous experience once there. One of the interesting things that I found out in the research, you know, about your time there is that the year before you showed up, uh, there was a person by the name of Akalizi Pohiva, who's actually now the prime minister of Tonga. And he started a mm -hmm. pro-democracy movement there. So you arrived on the islands just as this pro-democracy movement is starting. In 93, while you're there, the movement starts winning their first seats. And in 94, there's this political party that's created. And I'm wondering, while you were there, did you have an appreciation for the fact that you were at the center of maybe some titanic political and social movement going on in the country? Did that change the Peace Corps experience for you? And how much of that do you carry with you today? So there are some indications of that. So it, it, it was the kingdom of Tonga. It was a monarchy that was in place at the time. The monarchy is still extremely well respected among the Tongan people. They are a very traditional society, but they also really are finding themselves in this modern world, looking at these, these four distinct island groups that make up the country uh, how do each of them have representation and uh, the ability to influence the government of their country and really shape it from a personal perspective? They, the time that I was there in the Peace Corps, the World Bank and other global institutions were there in the country. And, and of course, I was with the Peace Corps itself. So they're sort of as a, you know, we're here, we're, we're here to help kind of approach um, with this country, but we're not really having... I think the same level of sensitivity and understanding of what it meant to really help and support the Tongan people for themselves, for their own objectives, for their own values that they wanted to see as their country sort of transitioned 
from a fairly isolated place to a more globally connected country. And for example, uh, some of the investments at the time that were going on by the World Bank um, were to grow export crops for the, the major market economies that were in that area. So Japan was a major um, consumer of some of the exports that the country uh-huh. could provide. And so they were growing a very special delicacy of a certain kind of pumpkin that was very popular and could uh, yield a high price um, in Japanese markets. But the World Bank was sort of promoting this this one product at the time as being the way to lift uh, the Tongans out of what they saw as poverty. They saw it as poverty because the Tongans were not really a cash economy. They didn't um, participate in a currency exchange in the same way that other places do. And so the annual household incomes of the Tongan household might be as low as as $200 or $400 a year. Mm -hmm. But they were also subsistence farmers, subsistence fisher people. And so um, they had beautiful fish to eat and wonderful um, local crops in their own uh, cultural diet that was there. They made their homes out of the materials that were locally available. So they were far from from what we would consider being poverty stricken. It's just that they didn't participate in the monetary exchange economy. And that's something that, you know, in the World Bank assumption, you needed to to do as a measure of wealth of a country. So to get them into the global market economy, they cultivated this pumpkin uh, industry. Um, This is a monoculture, it required taking down a number of clearing fields um, so that they could grow this single kind of plant. They were promoting this this, uh, product among all of the Tongan farmers that were looking to build some level of monetary wealth, um, which meant that you then had many producers, which of course then meant that the products, uh, the price of the single product uh, went down in the marketplace. And the true irony was that the Tongans themselves hated these pumpkins. They did not like the flavor of these pumpkins. They gave them to their pigs as pig food. Um, so they couldn't, which meant that they were not growing the crops of their own diet. They uh-huh. now needed to go to the market and buy the crops that they liked from the marketplace rather than growing it themselves while they're growing crops for a foreign country um, that they themselves didn't even eat. So anyway, this was kind of what was happening at the time that I was there. And I think it informed a lot of things for me, which was that it's really important to listen to local community values of what people want for themselves, um, that to be the outside expert showing up with these sort of preconceived notions of what it means to be a successful community or, or what it is that, that communities want and sort of, you know, eat your vegetables, they're good for you kind of approach is not the way to respect communities, that we need to understand that Tonga is a unique place um, that is different than Japan, that is different than the United States, um, and that we can't assume really that there is a single sort of market solution to all of these places. And, And of course, that translates into our own various diverse communities here in the United States and um, the need to listen to um, what local priorities, local values, the local vision that we have for ourselves and what it means to be a vital and successful and connected community um, may not be the same thing across all communities. And, and, and so we need to listen to that 
and problem solve around those objectives. And I want to talk a, a little bit more about that in a few minutes, um, especially as it relates to our home city of Pittsburgh and autonomous vehicles. But let's talk a, a little bit about Pittsburgh. You were tasked with starting up a new department. You were a new director in a new city um, with you know, essentially a blank sheet of paper. The, the mayor said to you, Karina, we've got to transform the city. So let me ask you this. When you said yes to the role, and I understand the mayor and the city council are very persuasive, what did you think you knew about Pittsburgh? And what do you know now about Pittsburgh, you know, given almost two years on the job? What I knew about Pittsburgh is that it's a fantastic city, that it's really a little bit of a sleeper city, I would say. At this point, it's a dark horse, maybe becoming less dark all the time, that this is a gem, the cultural resources that are here, the natural landscape of this city, just the the ethos of the, the community that's here, the people that are here is just really fantastic. It is you know, I, sometimes I talk with my husband and, and at times it feels like you're stepping out of a Norman Rockwell painting, you know, because that is still the current life in Pittsburgh where neighbors know neighbors and they look out for one another, um, where there's still just such a strong sense of community and, and a high, high level of community pride. Um, I did not have an appreciation of the many goat paths streets that we have in the city. <laughs> yeah. um, where we we are the northernmost city of Appalachia, and that means that we have, you know, hollows and valleys and hidden little neighborhoods that are that are, you know, tucked away in in various nooks and crannies um, of the city with with streets and steps and things that are so narrow and so precariously placed on the side of hills that it gets really interesting um, when we have uh, high levels of rain or snow or ice. That I did know, of course, that Pittsburgh is an old city, that we're a legacy city. I maybe did not have uh, the same appreciation for how old some of our bridges and infrastructure are and sure. the, the need for reinvestment and, and um, maintenance that was required for that infrastructure. Uh, I maybe did not really appreciate coming from Washington, D.C., which is a complex street network in and of itself. Understatement. Um, it was made for ways, I think. <laughs> um, but I didn't appreciate how in, uh, complex the, the Pittsburgh network is in that we have very few, if any, redundant uh, sort of gridded streets. There are there are only a handful of streets that really get you all the way from the center city through to the, the outer neighborhoods of the city. And there are not parallel corridors to most of these. So we have a lot of competition for use on a limited number of corridors to really get connected between the different destinations in the city. Um, so all of those things make it very, very interesting. I, of course, knew that Pittsburgh was a hilly city, which was part of its charm. Um, I maybe didn't know how many streets in excess of 30% grades we had. Um, <laughs> my, my car does. My legs do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that we have not a few streets that are actually stairs. So those are all very interesting so, uh, and charming pieces of Pittsburgh. Well, absolutely. Um, so we've talked a little bit about geography, topography, and landscape here certainly, you know, an, an old storied city. But as an urban planner, I have to think that 
that's part of the equation, you know, figuring out the engineering behind moving a city. But isn't there also another part of that which I call preconceived notions of what Pittsburgh should look like, how Pittsburgh should function, how transportation is supposed to function? And from an urban planning perspective, how do you take these legacy ideas with the terrain and turn them into new ideas that will move the city forward? So I think that a lot of, you know, for Pittsburgh in particular, for for cities across the country and the globe, I, I think that looking back is a good way to look forward. But I think that that's particularly important for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a city that once approached 700,000 residents in our 57 some square miles that we have in the city. We are now a city of 310,000 or so, so less than half of our former self, but we are a growing city and we're seeing it now. And we we are a city um, where people want to be, where we can expect more arrivals coming here. And so we really need to think about when we are again a city of 400,000 or 500,000, how are we going to move around when we already experience high levels of auto congestion uh, here in the city, when we already feel that that driving is the single uh, most efficient way um, to get from one point to another? I think the answers Uh, and how we will be the city of the future is to look back at the city that we were. Um, And we were a streetcar city where we had transit networks that covered many, many neighborhoods of the city and provided that connectivity. We were a walking city, which is why we have these great legacy of the public stairways um, and our our wonderful, wonderful uh, recreational trail system um, that we have in the city. Um, and that's how we moved that number of people uh, to their jobs, to school, to grocery shopping, to visiting with neighbors. And I think that that's what we need to start looking back at. Some of the preconceived notions, I would say, is that, you know, we do believe that there must be uh, an abundant uh, supply of parking at these destinations because we, we can't conceive of how people will get to these major employment destinations um, if they're not uh, able to drive themselves under their own power to that destination and have on-demand transportation available to them when they want to leave or, or go anyplace else. You know, on, on the flip side of that, we also can't, in this moment of time, just imagine that we can do away with parking and that the transit network that we have today or the bicycle network that we have today or the pedestrian network that we have today is adequate to meet the needs that people want. There are many places of the city, take the Strip District, for example, where it is necessary for the growth of that area that we reduce the proportion of driving um, from those uh, ratios that we've seen in recent decades, the share of of access that is coming by private automobile. Um, We cannot sustain that level in an area like the Strip that has one way in and one way out and has very limited <laughs> yeah, number yeah. of streets that go through it. For us to have, and we want the level of, of development and intensity um, that's proposed in that area, for us to achieve that, we need to find a way for people to get there by other means. But today, there's very limited transit service. The East Busway, amazing 
uh, public service that's here in the city. And part of our uh, family's life, yeah. passes right by the Strip District, but there's really no way um, to access this wonderful, wonderful uh, transit asset that we have there from that district. It passes by it, but it doesn't connect to it. Other transit services are on Liberty Avenue, which is not the most inviting, humane kind of experience (laughs) that, that you would want to go to. We have a disconnected and incomplete bicycle network through that area. We can't expect that people will not drive until and unless we provide other options for them to do that. And I, I do think we're, we're going to be talking about autonomy and, and how autonomy plays into that. I think that's one of the things that we do need to look to as one piece of the puzzle, but we have to also go back and look at these traditional solutions of walking, biking, and, and conventional transit. So speaking of technologies, urban planning seems to me to be a couple parts engineering and a couple parts artistry. And it seems some of the engineering is, is pretty straightforward, but when you start talking about incorporating into a city plan technologies that may not even exist yet, and that, that goes beyond things like driverless cars or Uber Elevate, how, how does a city planner approach looking into a crystal ball and saying, these are important technologies or these are not important technologies or where's the flexibility to allow a new technology to come on board and to be efficiently used by the community and actually make that community better? So cities are remarkably resilient. The transportation network, the the street network that we have in Pittsburgh today has in large part been in place for 200 years. So it has already gone through innumerable technological transformations. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's been a a bit of a smoother transition. (laughs) Sometimes it's been a little bit more difficult. But the physical infrastructure, we do need to keep in mind sort of forward flexibility and how can we make sure that that is adaptable and can be used in different ways. Um, But it's really the operational decisions that we make on the corridors um, and in our network, that, that is the key piece of that. How do we prioritize space? In many of our corridors and many of our streets, we have about 50 feet to work with um, from property line to property line. And we need to uh, look at where are we going to uh, divide that space up between the various users? Are we going to divide that space up or are we going to uh, keep it as a shared space for all? Speed and operational speed on the corridors has a lot to do with how flexible those uh, those streets can be for various kinds of technologies. So different modes of, of transportation can mix fairly well at speeds of 15, 20, maybe 25 miles an hour. They can coexist in a, in a more uh, shared format of the street, but that becomes... Uh, more difficult the higher the speeds go, um, where you really can't mix people outside of protective metal encasings uh, with with people traveling in metal boxes. When you get into speeds of 30, 35, mm. certainly 40 or 50 miles an hour, then we need to separate the uses. But we are looking at technology as being a, a, a way to recapture some of the value of our public ways. So curbside space is perhaps the most valuable and yet undervalued um, piece of real estate in the entire city. 
um, this curbside space, which is what drives economic activity, people being able to access and leave different destinations around the city. Um, But when you think about how much of that curbside space is static for a great period of time because it's a single vehicle sitting in that space for, you know, five to 20 hours uh, in a day, um, where that really could be accessed by scores of people in a day if managed properly, leaving those other pieces of the curbside space to be recaptured as green space or as uh, spaces for pedestrians to linger and mix or spaces to uh, have vending or other kinds of uh, economic activity. So we can do that through technology if we're able to effectively monitor uh, and manage the activities at the curbside space and if we're able to communicate the availability of that curbside space to the other users that might be in need of, you know, quote-unquote docking um, with the curbside so that we can keep a smooth flow of operations on the street. I think that's how we're able to use the space that we have to the highest economic advantage, highest uh, access advantage, um, and still get the quality of space, quality of place that we want from it. Which kind of brings us to, to our next topic, and that's Pittsburgh and autonomous vehicles. Um, I'm sure you agree that Pittsburgh has become exceedingly closely associated with the entire autonomous vehicle movement, whether it's the pioneering work that we saw with Carnegie Mellon that continues today with Mobility 21 and Traffic 21 and autonomous vehicles, or if it's Argo or Uber or the other three manufacturers here. If we could talk about that a little bit, I want to know, why do you think Pittsburgh has become a magnet for autonomous vehicle manufacturers? We've got five total in testing, rumors that there are two more perhaps on the way, and this technology is not going away. What is special about this place? What does this place bring to these manufacturers that other cities don't offer? Well, I think first and foremost is the pipeline that we have of technology talent, of robotics talent that is coming out of our academic institutions here. We are very fortunate to have uh, a deep bench of of higher education institutions that are really leading in this industry and creating those innovators and and putting them out into the world. And, And we're also equally fortunate that Pittsburgh is an appealing place um, one that these uh, much sought-after um, leaders in the industry are, are loath to leave, that they're they're happy to be here in our city. I think that that, of course, is one um, big driver as to why they're here, is just that ecosystem of talent and now of, of industry that we have here in the city that helps to support continued innovation and attract um, even more of it. I think secondly is the relationship that the city has um, with the industry. We have a very open relationship um, with the industry. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, there's there's a quote, it's good to be open-minded, but not so open that your brains fall out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to use that one on a future podcast and I'll make sure that you get credit for that, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I was not the, uh, I was not the origin of that <laughs> okay. phrase, but you know, we, we, we are open-minded about this, that there is a role to play in bettering not only our city, but bettering um, all of society through the application of this technology, which we do believe has great safety benefits 
um, associated with it, that it has the potential to much more efficiently use um, the transportation assets that we have and the transportation vehicles that exist in the world, that they can serve more people with fewer uh, vehicles with less impact if used right, that we think that it can achieve. My, the, the mission of my department is to provide the physical mobility that's necessary for the economic mobility of the people of Pittsburgh. We believe that, that autonomous vehicle technology has a role to play in meeting that, that vision. And so we do want to help cultivate and support the evolution and the, and the future development of that because it will play div- pay dividends in terms of safety, in terms of improved equity for, of economic opportunity. Um, and we do believe that. Having said that, it is very important to us that the testing that's going on here in the city is done in a safe way that it respects the the quality of life in our communities, that it doesn't unduly burden our city or residents. And so we have been able to cultivate a very open channel of communication with the industry where we can articulate um, what our concerns are and what our interests are in in protecting the interests of our um, residents, that we are able to uh, exert leverage when when we need to, principally um, from the, the seat of the mayor and the leadership that the mayor has provided in this area to compel cooperation from the industry. More than a month ago, we issued an executive order on autonomous vehicle testing for the city of Pittsburgh. Um, we believe that it's a first of its kind um, that really lays out the rules of engagement for doing testing in an urban environment and what that relationship is between the industry and the city. Um, We could have just rolled that out from our own executive authority and compelled um, the industry to comply with this, but instead we really dialogued with them over the course of several months. They taught us a lot about some of the, for example, some of the data points that we thought were really necessary for us to have and that we wanted them to report to us, they pushed back gently and respectfully and said, but how does that information really inform public policy? Does this really help you in decision-making or is this just a curiosity that you want just because you can get it? And, you know, in, in, in thinking about it and listening to them, you know, we really thought hard about it and said, no, actually that is not going to help public policy. That's not, you know, it is just a curiosity that we have, and our role is to protect the public interest, um, design public policy that directs this development of this industry uh, in a direction that supports our ultimate community uh, values and objectives. Um, and that extracting that kind of data from the industry is not helpful to our intentions and, and perhaps may even be harmful to the objectives that we have. And so really listening and hearing and working through these things together, um, we were able to craft um, an executive order that uh, gave the city what we needed um, to provide uh, the role that we're responsible for in the protection of the community and the and the preservation of our public interests, um, and at the same time create an inviting environment for the continued evolution of this um, technology. And, and again, I think that's because this city is small enough 
that we can get the right people in the room to talk through these issues, but large enough that it really matters uh, what comes out of those dialogues. Well, Karina, I think it's safe to say that the mayor and your department really caught the attention of the world when these principles and the testing guidelines and the executive orders were issued um, in early March 2019, which, which I guess leads me to a question. We have federal regulators that are telling uh, state and local municipalities how they should regulate or how, how they should not regulate. You have states taking active roles in the regulation of autonomous vehicles. How does a city like Pittsburgh carve out an oversight role when everybody else thinks it's their job as well? What do you think is, is the city's role versus the role of other government entities? So I think there's a difference between oversight and putting on um, uh, bumper guards. And, and what we did is we established what the guide rails were for testing here in the city of Pittsburgh. So we are not necessarily dictating to them, you know, what, what is the type of vehicle that they can test or what is the, the ultimate use case that they're trying to serve through this vehicle testing or other things like that. But we set guide rails and said, if you want to test in our city with our people, you know, being being part of this operating platform that you're operating within, these are the guide rails that you need to adhere to or you need to, to, to go someplace else with that testing. And so Rather than oversight, rather than management and, and, and really dictating to them how that is to go, we set parameters for them as to how it could go in this city. Um, and that's really no different than setting the the operational standards for um, the streets that we have here today. There are some streets where you can't take a truck on it because it's not appropriate for trucks to go on that street or there are streets that are very low-speed streets because it's not appropriate to travel at a higher rate of uh, speed there. Um, So it's really much more in that same vein that we're setting the operating parameters uh, for testing in this city rather than really providing that sort of oversight, strong-arm requirements of the industry, if that makes sense. No, it it makes a lot of sense, and I think you've really been a strong advocate for this type of pragmatic approach. Certainly, you, you've noted what's happened in California, where California has a focus on disengagement metrics, and one could argue that they would judge the effectiveness and safety of an AV program by the disengagements. Yet, you've been pretty vocal over the last several months about why disengagement metrics might not be the best metric. Can you share with us a little bit where your thinking is on, you know, not only a disengagement metric, but is there any other specific metric that you think could be a, you know, a traffic light, green, yellow, or red, saying that the vehicle is not safe? Well, so on the disengagement specifically, I think it's really important to remember that these vehicles are testing. This technology is under development. It is not done. It is not ready for deployment. There are a number of safety measures that we expect and that we're thankful that the industry is is actively practicing, which really have a strong, strong bias toward safety, toward disengagement, 
Um, if there's any uncertainty, if the if the operating system of the vehicle or if the operations of the vehicle are in any way uh, not responding quickly enough to whatever they might be encountering in the in the street space, the default is to kick it out of autonomous mode and have the human driver take over. That's something that we want. We do not want to put up any uh, unintended uh, incentives against trying to take the vehicle out of autonomous mode if, uh, or to disengage the, the autonomous driving system uh, if there's any question about uh, what's happening in the world. And so that is unfortunately, uh, while I, I, I don't believe that the industry, the industry is still, as far as we know, exercising that high degree of caution and they are disengaging at a high rate, even in California, um, where all of those disengagements are, are needing to be required, uh, reported. But that reporting mechanism can erroneously convey to the public an understanding that, well, look at how many times they're disengaging. That must mean that the technology is faulty. It's not necessarily what that means. Another way to read that is that uh, enterprise uh, takes a very cautious and person protective approach to their testing because they are disengaging well, uh, more often than not. They are recording what, what the vehicle would have done. You know, they're still running the simulation model even after the driver has disengaged the self driving system. And so, you know, more often than not, what they're finding is that the vehicle actually would have responded appropriately in that situation and many times would have responded better. Um, than how the test driver ultimately did. But rather than risk that, rather than than, than take lives into, uh, put them in, a, in any kind of vulnerable state, they disengage um, and learn through the simulation that is running concurrently with the driver. And, and that is how we think that that's the best way to slowly and cautiously and appropriately evolve this technology as we gain more and more learning from the testing in the real world street environment. Yeah, what what's always puzzled me over the last couple of months is that at as you were saying at the core of this specific metric, it, it's really a risk tolerance metric as you were saying, and we see a lot of emphasis placed on this by the Department of Transportation in Washington, by some of the cities and some of the states that we've we've just talked about. And, uh, you know, I do continue to scratch my head and, and say, certainly we got to come up with something better. Certainly the industry can offer something better, which kind of, I guess, brings me to my, my next question on, on this, Karina, is that, God forbid, something does happen. How does a city decide when the autonomous vehicle operations are no longer safe? And does it decide, you know, operator A, you are no longer safe, or does the city say, none of you operators is safe, so therefore we have to suspend all operations. Or should I even be using the word city suspend operations? What is, what's the thinking in City Hall on that? Well, if there's any indication that there is a higher degree of risk being put upon the general public than exists under the current condition, we would ask, and, and, and to the extent that we can, instruct um, either the industry or the individual company to cease operations in the city. Um, we are not going to 
allow our public to be put at a greater um, position of risk than they are under the sort of normal human operating system that we have today. Having said that, um, regrettably, uh, the trend line for human operators of motor vehicles in urban areas is not good. It's trending in the wrong direction where we are seeing continued high rates of crashes, um, significant injuries and fatalities, where a lot of that is attributable to increased use of electronics in the vehicle. So distracted driving, um, texting while driving, you know, not using hands-free devices um, while driving, um, just the gizmos and gadgets in the cars um, distracting drivers in an urban complex urban environment where um, there's any number of users on the street. It really takes just a moment of distraction to cause something really tragic to happen. With the autonomous vehicles, um, not only do you have the many sensors that are on the in the testing scenario that we're in right now, not only do you have the many sensors that are on the vehicles, which are generally significantly, significantly more perceptive and alert uh, on the street than your average driver is, but you also have the redundancy um, of the the, uh, operator of the vehicle and the safety driver because all of the operators in the city have two people uh, in the vehicle who are required to be alert and observant at all times um, in the vehicle. So one is there is no reason to believe, given how much data gathering, sensing, the, the driver and the redundant driver, the business practices of these testers right now, um, there's the logic indicates that these vehicles have a much lower chance of causing injury and death in the city with the practices that they now use. And of course, we know um, that there was the fatality um, from the Uber vehicle mm-hmm. in Arizona um, last year. Very sad, um, yeah. And very uh, tragic. And that's something that no city uh, wants to see. And that was because the practices of that operator at that time were insufficient. And there were not those checks. There was not regulators looking under the hood uh, of their safety practices to see how they are operating that testing to make sure um, that they do have many more redundancies than just the, the, the average human driver on the street today has. Uh, In that case, the driver was not paying attention. The system was not mature enough to understand what it was seeing. There was not a second driver um, in that vehicle, uh, and that really caused a a great gap in the safety system um, and caused this failure that led to this tragic death. The industry Most of the other testers, at least those in Pittsburgh here, uh, already had more, uh, I would say, you know, potentially more robust safety practices Um, before. After that incident, they redoubled their efforts to look again, and and Uber themselves made uh, a a significant amount of corrective actions in um, what their safety practices were in testing. And those are the things that we want to continue to see. Even when these operators wish to change the safety practices that they've submitted to us and attested is is what they will be doing. That's something that we're going to have to look very carefully at. Um, the technology at this point, for what the city knows, 
about this industry, this technology is not ready for higher speed urban travel. We've asked the industry to adhere to lower travel speeds because they are uh, have, have a lower probability of catastrophic injury. Um, if there is a crash, they have generally adhered uh, or acquiesced to adhere to those lower speeds. We have uh, asked them to have two safety drivers in the vehicle at all times, regardless of the travel speeds that they intend to operate in in the city. All of them are adhering to that requirement. We have asked for redundant uh, systems of of sensing and uh, analysis, and all of them have that. So right now, the safety operations that they've submitted to us uh, have enough levels of redundancy that we feel um, fairly confident about this. If they were to change any of those, if they wanted to take out that second driver, if they wanted to attempt driving without any human being in the car and operate from a remote um, location or or monitor from a remote location, we would need to have a completely different discussion um, and really sit down with them individually to understand why we should have the confidence in them going in that direction um, at this point in time. But right now, all of them are really taking a very conservative approach uh, to safety Again, that's not to say that there will not be a crash um, at any time um, with any one of these testers um, in the city of Pittsburgh, but we have every reason to believe that they certainly have no more of a probability of uh, being involved in a crash than the regular drivers that we have in the city right now, Um, and we have every reason to believe that it's significantly lower Um, than the probability of the average driver. Well, I think that in this case, the city's position is pretty loud and clear. And uh, I think that the vehicle makers hopefully have taken it to heart. Let me, in in the last couple minutes that we have, because our our time is drawing to a close, I just would like to, to touch on maybe two other topics. I want to get back to the groundbreaking documents, um, that the mayor and your department put out on principles, testing and guidelines. One of the laudable things in in this, Karina, is the idea that public transparency, public education, and a commitment to the public is woven in almost every sentence and every thread of these documents. One of the things, though, that I'd like to get your thoughts on, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, is that, and, and these are my words now, there's a lot of secrecy in the autonomous vehicle business because these makers want to keep their secrets. Um, They don't want the cat out of the bag on the secret sauce on how their vehicles um, use their perception systems. How do you ensure that there's an environment where the transparency that the public is looking for is being met by the information that's being provided from the automakers? Is, Is there a way? Is it public pressure? Is it more public engagement? Is it meetings at parks and meetings at businesses. What's the public policy sauce on getting all the information that's needed so that the public feels informed as to what's going on? Part of that is that the industry is relying ultimately on public acceptance of this technology. So you recall Google Glass and and how transformative Google Glass was going to be. Oh my, as they Um, say. (laughs) Right? Yes, I remember to, that. To to the world, but it, there was really never this this public adoption that that followed this. It, there wasn't an understanding of what, what 
does this do to me? Does this make my life better? Does this does this fill a niche that I was that I was looking to have filled? And so ultimately, these technologists need to have a market at the end of the day. It's they're not just experimenting for experiment's sake. Some of them are, which is great. But you know, at the end of the day, they are looking to provide a a service and operating system that will find a market and will find customers and will be used. That's not going to happen uh, if the public doesn't trust this technology, if they don't think that the the application of this technology leads to a better life, leads to a better community and a better place that they have. And so that's really the point of leverage that we have um, is to say we, we can help as a government. We can help you accelerate that market acceptance. Um, we can help uh, uh, articulate to the public what the benefits um, of this technology are, provided that they're benefits that also align um, with the goals and values that we have as a city. Um, but you do need to take down that black curtain a little bit and let us see what it is, because we can't speak to things that we don't know, and the public won't trust things that they don't understand. So we can be that translator. We can be uh, the ones to really dive deep, make sure that we understand so you're not just a snake oil salesman to the public, um, but we can be the validators that say that we've taken the time so that you, John Q. Public, don't need to, Jane Q. Public, um, we've taken the time to really understand this. We've had these um, dialogues with the industry. Um, they've shared with us um, what these sensing systems are, you know, how they work, why they work, and and we can translate that into a layman's understanding to bring the public along. One of the principles that we have in the Pittsburgh principles that we put out for um, shared and autonomous mobility is that we need to provide enough information and, and make this transparent enough that stakeholders can be informed participants um, in the policies and regulations um, that will be propagated around this uh, vehicle, this operating system. And so we need to bring that level of education to the public so that they can speak for themselves um, what it is that they want uh, out of this technology. And therefore, um, by being able to sort of express their wishes, they are also informing the market as to where they'll get the most value um, from the use cases that they're advancing. I see. So Karina, um, got one last question for you. You've been just so kind to share your time with us today. But I want you to put on your city planner hat and I want you to pull out your crystal ball. It, it occurs to me that cities have two very powerful tools in their toolkit. Um, one is their municipal codes. Uh, the other one is their zoning regulations. Do you foresee a day where there will be a city, whether it's Pittsburgh, fill in the blank, where they say, look, these vehicle perception systems, they have certain deficiencies, they have certain advantages in different kinds of weather, they see things differently. Do you ever think a municipality is going to get to the granularity where they say, okay, this building must be constructed of X, Y, and Z materials, this road must be painted X, Y, and Z, so that the vehicle perception systems can read the roads and see the buildings. Is that something in the future? I mean, I could easily imagine that, right? We have the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, MUTCD, that guides the, the line striping and the signage and the, and the signalization 
rules around many of our streets that a white line always means one thing and a yellow line always <laughs> means something else and that there are certain weights and they're, and they're laid out in certain ways. And we've done that so that we can facilitate human operations in the system. I think that it's a very short leap to go from that to what might be um, similar standards that would be uh, adopted to facilitate uh, autonomous operation, consistent, reliable, um, intuitive uh, autonomous operations um, in a city. I think I can easily see that. I think I think the big question that occupies more of my time regarding autonomous vehicles is what kind of city are we going to have at the end of the day and how can we use um, municipal codes and, and operating rules of the road to get to that future that we want and not be passive observers. Um, the past 70 years have been cities, in a way, uh, just sort of reacting to increased pressures from private automotive uh, influences in the city, um, really, really changing the nature of our streets, changing the nature of our buildings, changing the nature of our economy. Um, I think this time, if this is really going to be a disruptive moment, uh, a moment of reinvention for our communities, we need to be proactive um, in shaping that city. So I don't want to imagine a world where we need to have fences along all of our sidewalks to keep the pedestrians in their place so that they're not stepping out in front of uh, autonomous vehicles that better be programmed to stop when a pedestrian (laughs) steps in front of them. We need to design our cities and our transportation together so that the the great urban design of our cities is preserved and we can still have efficient operating mobility systems. Um, And we do that through our street design standards. We do that through our curbside management strategies. We do that through our lane and intersection operation strategies so that we can get the, the use from autonomous vehicles that we want. If all we achieve at the end of the day with autonomous vehicles is the same number of single occupant vehicles in our cities that we have today, or perhaps even more because we'll have zero occupant vehicles in our city, that is a failure. Uh, And that's a tremendous lost opportunity and it's something that we can't afford to have. And so now is the time for us to really start thinking about those codes and the tools that we have in our toolbox to get the city that we want in an autonomous age. Karina, you have been a fabulous guest. You're welcome back anytime. And I cannot thank (laughs) you enough for joining us on Thinking Through Autonomy. Great. This has really been a great discussion. So thank you. 